on a personal level, I truly believe that all my characters, they choose me. I get to be an instrument and a voice for people that are marginalized or go unheard or, or who feel voiceless. People like that come from the same community I was born and raised in. And I know what that feels like because I felt like that before. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director in LA and I cast TV, film, video games. And one thing I love about having my own podcast is it gives me a chance to talk about the things that are important to me, to curate the shows that inspire me, to amplify the actors whose performances astonish me, and to spotlight great writers, directors, designers, all kinds of things. And it also gives me the chance to pay tribute to artists when we lose them. And we have had a staggering loss of an actor who has held my heart for many, many years, who's become an icon for many people and who I was lucky enough to cast in two projects. And that actor is Michael Kenneth Williams, or MKW, as I always said. Now, if you know Michael's work, then you know exactly why I want to honor him today. And if you don't, then I am so thrilled for you because you have a treasure trove of incredible performances that are just waiting for you to watch them. And if you're an actor, he's somebody that you must know and study. And if you're not an actor, but you just, a lot of our listeners just love crime shows like I do, you love the down and dirty, dark and twisted stuff, you'll definitely want to watch the amazing series that he starred in. You know, there are so many, and we're going to talk about them today, The Wire, Boardwalk Empire, The Night Of, so many. And as you know, I can't talk about this by myself. I need to break it all down with my sexy beast co-host, Dean Laffin. Hey, Dean. Hello, Lisa. Thank you for calling this pod. Uh, very fitting. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a special guest joining us. He is also an incredible actor, director, writer in his own right. You might have seen him in movies like The Irishman, where he acted opposite Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, and in TV shows like When They See Us, The Deuce, Boardwalk Empire. And he is currently shooting The Offer with Miles Teller, where he gets to play a very young Mario Puzo. Please welcome Patrick Gallo. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Does your audience know that we know each other so well? They don't know, but they are going to learn that I've known Patrick for so, so long. He's um, uh, he's just incredible. I mean, not only the things oh. that you may have seen him in, but his own work, his own short films. And I'm going to post all of them on our socials because you're so incredibly talented and funny and everything, everything. We, we I love you so much and I'm so yeah. happy to see you, but I'm so sad that I mean, I wanted to have you on anyway, just to talk about all the work you're doing. But I saw what you posted, I guess it was on Facebook about Michael. And I don't know if you want to read it or you want to repeat what you wrote, but I just felt like you were the perfect person to jump on with me and talk about his work from your perspective as an actor and a writer and a director. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, both colleagues, obviously his family and fans and what a loss to art. He was a special, special actor. There's a lot of great actors. There's some that just stand out, man, and stand distant from the majority. And he was one of them. He was just a, a really, really engaging and powerful guy. He's beloved. 
his work is beloved. So you were both in When They See Us. You didn't have scenes. You're kind of in the same scene sequences, but you weren't in scenes with him, but you were at the table read. And what were you saying about at the table read that you noticed? You know, that was an incredible table read. Uh, Without going into all that, it was just an incredible table read. But seeing him being a fan, you know, and that was just really, really special. I, I mean, I remember when I saw him and I thought, oh my God, I can't wait to tell my wife. And she's such a big fan. And I was in the room with him and as equals, right, working on this amazing piece and introduced myself to him and, and we talked for a little while and he couldn't have been more, you know, just couldn't have been warmer and more beautiful, like immediately. And, uh, and it ended up that we sat across from each other uh, at the table. And, and yes, we had no scenes together, but we walked through the script. It was just a real beautiful thing to sit there and watch him slowly move through this dialogue and explore it in a way that you do at a table reading. You know, it's not in the infancy of exploration, just watching him do that. These are the moments that you love, that you get to be so fortunate as an actor to witness and be a part of. And so we sat there and we did these scenes and it was just great. We kept looking at each other and he'd do a scene. He knew I was watching him and he was watching me and he would kind of give me a nod. And it was like a little uh, lightning bolt to your soul. It was just a, a cool thing, just a real cool thing, a big loss. And I want to break apart what was so special. Dean, did you have any thoughts about MK? I first encountered him in Boardwalk Empire. I missed The Wire when it was first broadcast. So I, to this day, still haven't seen an entire episode of that show, let alone the series, but seen clips and knew of his work from that. But yeah, discovered him when he came on the screen in Boardwalk Empire and immediately just incandescent. You could not take your eyes off him. And I read one of the tributes said, that he never gave a halfway performance in anything. And it was clear from the get-go, as soon as he came on screen as Chalky White, anytime he was on screen, he just dominated your attention. You couldn't take your eyes off him, and he was brilliant. So, yeah, very tragic to hear about this. And then to follow up and learn more about him now, but sadly after the fact. So I've been enjoying the stuff that I've been reading and uh, seeing of his work and just sad that we won't see more. So he first came onto my radar watching The Wire. And actually earlier today, Patrick, I was talking to Patrick's wife, Lolly, and we were reminiscing about some of the great scenes in The Wire. And what she pointed out so rightly is how he listened, how his characters listened and watched and received. Even if he didn't have a lot of lines in a scene, he just dominated the energy. It takes so much presence to be able to do that and confidence to just receive. So I first saw him as Omar on the wire. We're going to play a clip from it and I want to watch it together because Patrick, I want your input on what you see him doing. Uh, This is one thing we like to do on the show is not just praise actors for the great performances, but really take it apart, pull it apart and analyze it and dissect it and figure out what an actor is doing. Omar.
You don't need to open this door, man, for a huff and puff. Come on now, by the hands of your chinny chin chin. Omar, you best roll out. We up in here with the Mac 10. Oh, I think it's not, Terrell. I think it's not. Y'all might need to think this through and stop wasting my time. Because Omar will come back tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And I will put a bullet in all y'all behind what happened right now. You heard? Anything strike you about that, Pat? Some people just have a presence, man. They can do very little. And that's the beautiful thing that he did is he didn't do too much. He just did exactly what you do when you're living and you're breathing. That's the gift. That's what he always did. And that's what I see in him. It's effortless. He's just exactly where he is. That's an unbelievable gift that takes an unbelievable amount of focus and care and love. And risk <laughs> too, right? That's immeasurable, man. And then you, and you watch him. That's the, the first clip I watched with him since the news yesterday. And uh, yeah. it's a real tragedy, man. That he's, what I see when I, when I watch that scene, I see his inner rhythm. And yeah. I see how he is in his body, how he's walking. He's got this pace, but he's got, it's just so funny. He's counterpointing against all of, there's all this chaos. People are running like, Omar yeah. coming, Omar coming. Mm-hmm. And he's just got this steady beat. And even when he stops there, he stops in front of the tenement building. Inside, it's like, he's just got this pulsing. Then he works the shit out of that cigarette. I mean, I just love when actors just use yeah. everything, just ring everything out of his costume, what he's wearing, how he's just slinging along that shotgun like it's just his purse or something. (laughs) Like, it's no big deal. The rhythm of his words. I mean, of course, it's fantastic writing. I mean, we know this. But it's the perfect alchemy of writing and what he does with it. The rhythm of how he says the three little pigs or blow your house down or whatever. And how he's dangerous yet light. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's like patience and terror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That balance, man, is just an extraordinary thing to behold. I thought the shooting in that scene was great too, Lisa. The mix of the wide shots and the extreme close-ups on him that really let you see what was going on. As you said, you could see what was going on in his mind. Even without him physically nodding, you got that sense of that beat. And I love just the badassedness of him standing there with his back to these dudes like, I dare you to try and shoot me. And he, you know, he's standing there with a sawn-off shotgun. He knows they're going to be tooled up, but he's like, nah, I don't need to worry about you. I can just turn my back to you and literally just... Whatever. Yeah. Ain't no yeah. one going to kill Omar. This role of Omar, who is a gangster, uh, stick-up man, rough character, this was one of, of many that he played. And yet, even though, and he said this before when he's been interviewed, yeah, I've played a gangster, old-timey gangster, Baltimore gangster, Deep South, but they all are nuanced. And I was just re-watching so many clips today. There's a clip of Omar in jail, and then there's another clip 
later from Boardwalk Empire of Chalky being in jail. And then, of course, in the night of, he's also in jail. And all of those characters are so differently drawn. And Patrick, you were in Boardwalk Empire, by the way. I should have mentioned that. Uh, but you, you didn't work with Michael. But um, I didn't, uh, didn't have any scenes with him. Particularly in Boardwalk, I was watching an interview with him earlier today. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. It's fabulous. It's about a 25, 30-minute clip, and he breaks down those classic characters that he's so well known for. And with Boardwalk, he was trying to get into the head of this guy. The peek into his process was really interesting because what he did was he identified five characteristics that Chalky had, right? He was tender with his kids and protective of his kids, but he was the sort of guy that could kill someone with his bare hands in five seconds. He was a bit of a ladies man and so forth. So he had these five characteristics and to relate to them, he selected five of his relatives, of his own relatives that were no longer living. And then he spoke to his living family about those characters and deep dived them and sort of got to know them, even though he hadn't met them necessarily. But for example, the ladies man element of Chalky was based on his dad. And he was said, dad was kind of a pants man, right? So the cousin that was in prison, um, he drew on him. So he drew on all these different things that then informed him about that character. And it was just one of the things. I don't know if he did it all the time. I don't think he did because he then went on to talk about for a different character, he would just listen to a whole bunch of music and just sort of use that to inform the way that he approached it. So I was blown away not having known anything about him apart from his performances before throughout this 30-minute interview. He is just so thoughtful and so gentle. It's only struck me since in preparation for the pod how much of a loss this must be for people like yourself, Patrick, that knew him because he just seems like an amazing human being. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, you know, I only met him that day and it was brief and and I was able to read with him and that was great. But just from that alone, uh, I remember how electric, you know, the electric I felt in my body because I had already looked up to him as an artist. And then when I met him, he was so wonderful and sweet and open and warm. And that was immediate, you know, so even in that brief time. Yeah. Yeah. Very considerate when he was talking about when they see us. He gave a a shout out immediately to the Innocence Project for listeners and viewers who, if you haven't already listened to Jason Flom's amazing podcast called Wrongful Conviction, and it's stories of people that have been exonerated. And Lisa, you know from your RCP work how much false confessions go with wrongful convictions. He was just, he's just polymath. Is that the right word? He's just across everything. It was just amazing. Very, so, very yeah, impressive. Let's talk about when they see us. Oh, actually, let's go back for a second. What struck me in the interviews I've seen with MKW is how he is not precious about his process. He puts it right out there, as Dean was saying. Yeah. With Omar, he was able to pull from his own life of growing up in a certain way. But then when he was playing Chalky, he pulled very exteriorly from his relatives. I mean, can you talk about the actor's process a little bit and maybe your process a little bit? Uh, similar in that way. And many actors I know have a very, very uh, regimented process. You know what I mean? They know how they need to move and how they need to sort of use themselves as a magnet and pick everything up and and move it through to tell a story. Similarly, what Dean was saying about Michael's process is is the same for me too. You know, it's really whatever that process is going to be is usually uh, handed to me by the script. It just kind of comes to you. And sometimes the process changes while, you know, it's happening. You know what I mean? Like some days there's certain scenes that I'm doing where I need to approach it a different way and other days it's different. So, you know, I don't have a 
a specific architecturally find way to do it. I really allow the script and the story to kind of, you know, I look for the signs always there and I, and I'm patient enough to be like, it'll tell me where, how I need to go about this and how I need to move through it. Exactly. And that may seem, Dean, maybe to you and some of our listeners who aren't actors, that may seem like kind of obvious, but there are some actors who will stick with what they yeah. do, no matter what mm, kind of material, right. or what kind of genre. I know some very famous actors who, and that's what works for them. That, that structure yeah. gives them a lot of safety and they have to do certain things. Uh, I remember back a million years ago, Patrick, when I was an actress, when I, once I got my shoes, like I could not find the character until mm. the shoes. Yeah. So much to your body and to your energy and your pace and so, and everybody has their thing, but I wanted to talk about When They See Us, which, as we mentioned before, you were in. And if people haven't seen that Ava DuVernay series, it's just gripping, extraordinary. It's just so incredibly difficult to watch. Lisa, my wife, April, had to stop watching it. She got yeah. so angry. Yeah. She was furious. Yeah. And just so, she said, it's just, it's just eating me up. I, I yeah. can't watch the rest of it. And, and she's had to stop halfway through. If you don't know, it's about the Exonerated Five, as they're known now, who um, used to be called the Central Park Five, five young men who were falsely accused and convicted of a rape and a horrible beating of a woman in Central Park in New York. Anyway. Um, I've got a clip for that, Lisa. Cute for people to watch. So this is uh, him in prison with his, uh, sorry, at the police station when his son has just been arrested and he's trying to make his son understand that they have to operate under a different set of rules than the white cops that have arrested them. So let me just play that for you right now. It's about a minute and it looks a little bit like this. So that scene for me could not be farther away than Omar Little, even though that character is also an ex-con from a rough neighborhood. What do you see when you see that scene, Patrick? It's a little tough for me because I'm in it, in the show, and I have a different uh, connection to it all, to everything mm-hmm. that's happening. 
once again, I just see someone who is just effortlessly wrapped up in exactly where he is and exactly the circumstances that, that he is living in, not playing in, but living in at that moment. And it's just a tough, upsetting thing to watch when someone can harness that. I, no. I see in his uh, eyes his fear, his terror for his son because yeah. he's walked the walk. He knows and he's been beaten. I mean, he comes across as a man who has been absolutely beaten by this system and he knows what's going to happen. And he lashes out at his son in a way. He, mm. he loses control. His fear makes him lose control and lash out out of pure terror. It's just a heartbreaking scene and he's so vulnerable in it. In that interview, Lisa, he describes he didn't get the chance to talk with the real life father, but he did speak yeah. to the real life mother. And I'm not going to paraphrase what he says, but it was he said in that discussion he had with her was one of the most moving and heartbreaking things that he's ever dealt with. He said that the characters that mean the most to me are the ones that damn near kill me. He was speaking specifically about his uh, role in Lovecraft about that. And how that role took him into places that he really wasn't prepared to go and that really stretched him. And that's in the interview as well. So listen to that. But I think it seems like it's true of a lot of the roles and goes back to that comment that he never does anything half-hearted. If he's doing it, he's doing it completely 100% committed and that's going to have a cost, I suppose. Absolutely. Patrick, did you see him in the night of by any chance? Did you, mm -hmm. did you see again, stunning performance, his power as this, He's incarcerated. He's an ex-boxer. He really rules the roost in this prison, but in a much darker way. How manipulative he is with Riz Ahmed, who is this young kid who's incarcerated. He may or may not have committed a murder. We don't know. But he wraps himself around Riz Ahmed's character and just manipulates him in such a... I can't even describe what it is. This Machiavellian seduction yeah. in a way i thought it was interesting to again not having previously known anything about him and reading about how as he grew up it turns out that he was sexually molested as a child and then was confused about his sexuality and he was drawn to the gay community not because he identified as gay but because he just loved the sense of release and celebration of dancing carelessly in nightclubs till all hours of the morning and he really got off on that which is how he became a dancer just a very interesting cat from so many different perspectives to at least live an amazing life stretched what? boundaries in every direction i'm really glad you brought that up because he did become a huge gay icon because omar little was very loud and proud mm. Gay, which in his community, in his world, was probably more risky than dealing drugs. And he was absolutely fearless. He also played an amazing character, a pioneer of gay activism when he played Ken Jones in When We Rise. So yeah, I mean, he just gave so much strength to those roles and gave voice to the voiceless, which is incredible. He was apparently quite bemused because he was teased as a result of his sexual molestation as a child his neighborhood knew about it and they it was teased as faggot mike and oh. then when he yeah that's what he was known in in the hood 
apparently. And then he was coming out of a dance club one night when a friend of his was being attacked by some other guys and he jumped in to help. And that's where he got slashed and he got the scar on his face. And what bemused him now as an adult was that he said, overnight, I went from being faggot Mike and being soft character and derided. And just because I had a scar on my face, now I'm badass and people would not even look at me. And he went, what's going on with that? <laughs> so mm-hmm. you, you wonder about how that played into his process as an actor as well, that something as simple as that could just change people's perceptions. And again, very perceptive that he would see that of himself and be able to reflect on it and describe it. So the last thing I kind of want to touch on is I was so thrilled to be able to cast him in two things. And Patrick, I wonder if you can relate to this because I know that Michael struggled with being typecast a little bit. And I know that maybe sometimes you might feel that that New York Italian guy, um, even though you've played so many different things. I mean, do you feel that sometimes that people only see you as one thing? I know that I definitely walk the line and it does. It worries me sometimes. I think that I've had enough courage to not do things that I had, you know, possibilities to do auditions for things that I went, eh, you know, that's going to take me down a road that I don't want to go down. Mm-hmm. So I'm willing to give up those jobs. So I feel like I, I've been kind of lucky that I've had a, a semi-wide spectrum of roles that I think I've had because I've not allowed myself to move into the ones that would have kept me on a line of this guy, you know what I mean? This right. gang, you know, I've had a, a nice kind of variety. Mm-hmm. So I feel really lucky. It's not some easy thing to do. I mean, I work tirelessly every day to continue proving that I can do more than the things that you might be typecast as. You know what I mean? Like, I I have a great fear, a great fear. So that was in my mind when I I had this project. I cast a lot of video games and people may not realize that there's a lot of straight up hardcore acting that goes into video games. There are storylines and very moving scenes. And so there was a video game called Battlefield 4. And there was a role of this U.S. Marine hero engineer role. And I thought of MKW and everybody thought it was a great idea and thought this will never happen. He will never do this because he probably doesn't understand that there is real acting in a video game. And I just remember being on the phone with his manager and trying to facilitate a meeting with him and my director in New York. And I will die if he does this. I will, and, and he did it. And he was fantastic in it. And it was completely out of his comfort zone. He had no idea what he was in for because video games are, you talk about focus. You have to have a lot of fucking focus and you create everything. I mean, there is nothing there in front of you. And so if you're jumping out of a helicopter or you're trying to save somebody or you're shooting a gun, I mean, you are creating all of that and he did a fantastic job and then recently and i can't talk about too much about this project but i attached him to a very very special pilot that he was going to executive produce and he already did a sizzle reel for again it was a role that you've never ever seen him in and uh, it was set in oakland and about a a bunch of at-risk kids that he was going to try to help, but it was a completely different role than anything. And that's, I mean, that's what I love to do in casting. And I know that your wife is a fantastic casting director on her own, um, Laura Corin, And she, I know she would agree with me that that's the thing you want to take people and change their expectations about an actor. You want to stretch them. 
if they're always known for comedy, that's when you want to put them in something with huge pathos mm. or something yeah. like that. So I'm so sad that people won't be able to see him in this series, although there is a sizzle reel out there that hopefully they will release so people can see what he was going to do. And speaking of typecasting, Lisa, there's a brilliant two and a half minute video that he's in. I don't know the backstory of whether he wrote it or, or what, but it's very personal. It was done for uh, HBO as part of a series called Question Your Answers. And it's he speaks specifically about, he's playing himself. This is not a, not a clip from a film. It's a piece that he does discussing typecasting for him. Yeah, and he the interviews cost- himself. He plays himself yes. like well, four he, different he, ways. They comp him in. So folks, if you haven't seen it, I'll put it in the show notes, but they comp four different versions of him into his own lounge room, into his own living room, having a discussion with himself about him being typecast. The concept's brilliant, but the execution is superb. Yeah. And he is just wonderful in it. It's like two and a half, three minutes or something. Do not miss it. I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's brilliant. Well, I mean... I don't know what more we can say about this very uh, singular talent that we have just lost. I hope that people go back and watch his work, all of his work, mm. and uh, revisit his genius. And just shifting gears. So, Patrick, tell us about your project and how you're doing and, and what's going on. Uh, yes, currently I'm doing a show called The Offer, an amazing Amazing show. It is uh, based on Albert S. Ruddy, who produced The Godfather, and there's it's told through stories, uh, through his experiences making The Godfather. And so, in a way, it is the making of The Godfather, which it just doesn't get any cooler. <laughs> project. Mm. And then I stumble on playing the literary giant, the creative genius, Mario Puzo, which is just, uh, it, you know, one of the great. I mean, <laughs> you you, you are literally speechless at this yeah, at this point. You know, it's so funny today. Uh, uh, I was telling <sighs> a friend of mine who's also in the show, Juno. Uh, Juno Temple, everybody, his friend, his close friend, yeah. Juno Temple. <laughs> you know, and we were talking about it today. We all do all the cast and the crew, man. Like it comes up all the time. We're all making thing, and we all know like this is just special like we're all in a special place we all know that it's a unique and rare place that we all are sort of existing in but Juno and I were talking about it today and she said like what do you say I said I don't really I say very little because I don't really know how to put it out there I don't know what to say there's too much to Mm -hmm. say about a really special project it's just so much fun it's so cool in every way, it's, there's too much to say that I can't really, like I said, I can't really articulate it the way I want. Mm. To. I just want to kind of vomit a whole bunch of jewels out of my mouth. Well, I can't wait to see it. It's the offer. It's starring Miles Teller, Matthew Good, Juno Temple, Giovanni Rabisi. I mean, just. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Francis Ford Coppola, uh, who is genius. Dexter Fletcher. Like amazing, like I mean beyond, beyond amazing. I, I, I'm in love with him. I'm in love with the whole thing, and so I'm very excited for the world to step into the making of The Godfather. I guess that's the only thing I can say to it: to be just like loosely connected to The Godfather. Oh yeah. You know, it, how does I mean? 
No, as Italians, it. Patrick, come on. As Italians, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. Are you kidding? American, yeah, for Italian American. Yeah, that's that's American royal family right there. It's I mean, the, you know, even the, the stories that you do know that are public that I even know about the background of the making of The Godfather, it's no wonder that it's fodder for a movie or some sort of a production in and of itself. I yeah. put a post up on our socials this week as well mind-boggling, sure as you guys know, but listeners may or may not have caught, that Francis Ford Coppola is working on what I guess he would maybe think is his final major project, a megalopolis. Megalopolis, right? Megalopolis, which I think it's been in his head for his whole life, essentially. And he's just announced, I think this week or last week, that I just heard about it this week, that he's going to make it. And if he doesn't get the financing, he's going to take everything that he has Everything yeah. that he's made from the winery, $120 million, oh and he's going to yeah. make it himself. May even distribute it himself. Oh, hasn't like, he earned? Is, is, oh, I know. I know. That's I was like, Francis. <laughs> Zoetrope all over oh again. God. But he's, anyway. got, he's got a set on him. I tell you that. Well, this has been wonderful seeing you, my friend, Patrick. And I'm so happy yeah. in LA. We will get together. The boys are dying to see you. And... Uh, hang out. I'm happy you've met my friend Dean, my wingman, my rock here. And thank you for letting me do this tribute to somebody who's just been in my heart for so many years and who I'm just so sad that this has happened. So uh, untimely passing of MTU. Thank you for asking me. And it's an honor to go on the record speaking about him. It really is. Absolutely. All right, my friends, for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. Bye, Dean. See you, everyone. Killer Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music and Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill.